That's how you do it. <laughs> great, great, great hymn. Uh, that's, uh, that takes some of y'all back to your childhood. Wonderful stuff. Um, big picture. This series, uh, where we're kind of headed, is we want to understand the world that gave us Jesus. The world out of which Jesus came, which is known as the Second Temple Period. But to do that, we have to actually have to tell a larger story. And the larger story is the story narrated in the Old Testament. And kind of the, the back story. And then when we get to the end of this, we'll, we'll enter that world. Uh, today, we're in that section. We've dealt with Genesis. We've dealt with the Exodus narrative. Now we're in that period called the Conquest and Settlement. And a little bit beyond that. So that uh, blue section there, of course, is the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And then we're going to hit a little bit of Samuel because we, what we want to get up to is we want to get up to David as king. And then we're going to deal with the, the period of the kings next week. Um, prior to that, da uh, David is actually part of the Saul story. And so that's kind of where we want to, that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, now with this narrative, now that we move out of uh, the Exodus story and we now get to this entrance to the promised land, the taking of the land, we actually do, and this is something we want to do whenever we can, because let's be honest, there's not a lot of archaeology when you go this far back. There's just very little. But today we got one of the jewels. Have any of y'all been to the museum in Cairo? Okay. Do you remember seeing that? It's the crown jewel. That and King Tut. You know, they want to show you all King Tut stuff. I wonder if any King Tut stuff is left after all the problems they've had. This is what is known as the Merneptha Stella. Stella being a, a long sort of uh, object with writing on it. Merneptha is a pharaoh of Egypt in the 1200s of, is 1200s of, of uh, B.C. Uh, he's writing probably in about 1220, 1230 period. And basically what he wants to do is brag. Now, he wants to brag about all the great victories he had because what he did is he came roaring out of Egypt and he came into Palestine. And just like a tsunami, he just rolled over it. You know, when you got the greatest army in the world at that point, you can do that with some ease. Um, there's two lines of text in this that are of great interest to people who like archaeology. Because this is the earliest known archaeological reference to the nation of Israel. It actually exists. Um, and it summarizes this campaign. And this is what he proudly brosts. Now, can you read hieroglyphics? <laughs> you get the Rosetta Stone, you learn Greek, and you can figure that out kind of thing. But what's of interest looks like a man and a woman and a stick. It'd be tempting to say it's Moses and his staff, but it's not. Three vertical lines. Um, Israel is laid waste. His seed is not. And it, he kind of says that going through with, with Moab and Ammon and, and, you know, and the Midian, Midianites and then various things like that. Now, what strikes archaeologists about this statement is a couple of things. Uh, one is the term used for Israel is not like the term used for Ammon or Moab or any of the others. The others are all referred to in, in a way that says that they are nations. They are states. They're established entities with boundaries. When it refers to Israel, it does not use that language. It refers to it in a, in a way that's very, very unique. The word indicates that unlike everybody else, Israel is not an organized state. It is simply a group of people that are encountered. 
but they don't seem to have a, a state as such. So there are people without a state. Uh, so what this docu documents is that there is an entity in Palestine about the time the Bible says that they're coming into the land. Of course, they won't have a state till when? Yeah, David. Well, yeah, the, the modern state, but they won't have a, na a recognizable nation state. Not, not even under Saul did they have that. Under David, which is 200 years after that, they will finally have an established political entity called the state with borders, a capital, a king, and all that and under Solomon. Uh, but we know from archaeology that about the time the Bible says the children of Israel entered the promised land, there is a group of people known to the Egyptians as the Israelites who are there who are not yet a state. In other words, in broad strokes, essentially exactly what the biblical narrative tells us. So this is the earliest archaeological anchor to the biblical narrative that we have within the story. And so this becomes then a very, very important thing. We're blessed that in the, in the, uh, the Old Testament we have two histories that are they're sort of parallel and they're not the same. They cover the same events, but they cover them in very, very different ways. Uh, you know the difference between monocular vision and binocular vision, right? Which do you want? Yeah, you want the because you, you get the, the you get the sort of uh, comparison. We have what's called the Deuteronomic history because uh, all these books contain the language and the themes of the Book of Deuteronomy, and it begins with Deuteronomy and it continues through Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Which walks you right up to what? Second Kings ends with the destruction of Jerusalem going into exile. So we have this. And it's, it's, it's clearly at least been edited from different sources. But it's been edited by what they call the Deuteronomic editor. Now, from this viewpoint, it, it's very high on the prophetic literature. The prophets play a very important role. Uh, kingship is a bad idea. Okay. And the other one, we're going to have kingship. It's just the greatest thing since, you know, since mom's bread. Uh, which one do you think the David and Bathsheba story would be found in? Yeah, bad idea. Uh, it's political history. We got w lots of wars. We have a record of, of, of both nations. Uh, Israel is talked about a lot. Judah is talked about a lot. Uh, we have the continuing history of the nation. We have uh, a lot about the failure of Israel. That's that Deuteronomic theology. Now we also have First and Second Chronicles, which is a separate, independent, but parallel kind of history with a different agenda. Now it used to be thought that, that Ezra and Nehemiah was part of the Chronicler's history. It is not. It shares some themes, but it's also uh, written from a different perspective. But whereas the Deuteronomic history is kind of from the view of the prophets, Chronicler writes kind of from the viewpoint of the priestly. So what would you expect to find a lot of in a priestly narrative? Lots about the temple, lots about sacrifice, lots about ritual, lots about, you know, being pure and things like that. Kingship is a bad idea. Uh, it's not really interested in the political history. It's much more interested in how things develop religiously. Uh, you're going to have the temple play a really, really big role, really prominent role. You're going to have the record of Judah. Uh, the chronicler just skips the northern kingdom, just not in his radar, okay? Just not interested in that. Uh, we have the continuity of David's line, all this business about uh, the significance of the Davidic lines. For example, 
uh, we've got over on the left the David and Bathsheba story. Where do you think we would find the story where Nathan gives the promise to David that his kingdom, that uh, one of his heirs will stay on the kingdom forever and ever and ever? It's actually a little bit in both, but it's more emphasized over here. And uh, there's a lot of talks about, whereas the one on the left kind of talks about the failure of Israel, the one on the right talks about God's faithfulness. So today we're, gonna, we're in Joshua and Judges, so we are in a little bit of 1 Samuel. So we're actually in the one on the left. Uh, the story that we're going to tell is the story from where the Exodus ends until there's this guy, Samuel, who anoints this guy, Saul, and then God's blessing is taken from Saul, and there's this young kid, what's the young kid's name? David, who's ready to ascend the throne. We'll take him up. So it's a period, uh, and then next week we'll continue that. Um, so this is the period of the conquest. It is the period of the settlement of the land, both of which are problematic at multiple, multiple levels. One of which is there's horrendous things in here. They go into a town. God says, kill them all. Children, women, men. Jews go in. They kill the men. They leave the women and children surviving. God says, no, I told you to kill them all. And you get this horrible kinds of things going on there. Um, which is their understanding of God at that point. The book of Joshua is going to narrate how the promise of land, who was the promise of land given to? Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to Joseph. Uh, part of the promise is they would multiply and become numerous. Did that happen? Yeah, we hit the end of Genesis, the beginning, first verse of, uh, of Exodus. Now they're going to get the fulfillment of the land. Politically, still a hot potato. That piece of real estate over there is still politically uh, real hot potato. Uh, now, one of the things you get in the book of Joshua, if you don't read it real carefully, you just kind of you know, read it quickly, is it looks like a steamroller. It looks like they come in, they just take everything, and they've taken the land. Uh, that is not true. It's not true within the biblical narrative itself. But you kind of get that, that viewpoint. Parts of the story clearly reflect ancient tradition. For example, what did we just sing about? Joshua at the Battle of Jericho. And they march around the city several times. Did you know that that was part of the ancient warfare strategy? This is before Sun Tzu, I'm sure. But, you know, why would you march around the city with your army? Intimidation. Psychological warfare. Because a lot of cities would surrender without an arrow being fired. If they saw the size of your army and how vicious and mean and strong you were, kind of thing, you blew trumpets, and that was part of it. You just want to make the, you know, uh, and the walls came down. Well, it can mean fell down, is in the narrative, or it can mean you just came down, surrendered. Did you know the Romans did this? You know, a thousand years later, it's still a battle tactic in the ancient world. Uh, again, psychological warfare. Uh, there are some archaeological and historical problems with the story of the conquest. Now, one of the things we're trying to do in here is just be honest. Sometimes a story is a story. Yeah. Sometimes it's historically grounded, and we have both of those in there. Sometimes a story is an ideology. Do you remember that word? Um, you got the Adam and Eve story, and the end of the story it said, this is why snakes crawl in their bellies. This is why men have to work by the sweat of their brow. This is why women have labor, labor pains. In other words, it's a story that's meant to kind of explain some of what we're dealing with today. Uh, uh, so we have some of that laid out. Th by the way, this is, any of y'all been here? Jericho? 
and uh, no walls, so it worked, okay? Uh, the walls are in. That's Tel Jericho, uh, the oldest known city in the world. 12,000 B.C. Uh, they dug down in the earth of that. Now, Jericho, the city of Ai, and the city of Hebron are among the many cities that are depicted in the book as having been destroyed by Joshua and the Israelites. Uh, yet, archaeologically, this is a real problem because none of these cities show any archaeological signs of destruction during this period. Uh, stratigraphy. You remember that they can go down through the strata and you can date stuff by pottery or carbon-14 and stuff, so we know. Uh, there are no destruction signs in Jericho, not only from the time that the story is set, but within 500 years either direction. As a matter of fact, the city is not even occupied. Okay. So it's one of those stories. You've got a story about this. It's part of the tradition. Um, but the archaeology basically says that, that in the case of Jericho at least, uh, it looks like that probably did not happen during that period. Uh, Joshua's narrative is also challenged in the Bible, in the book of Judges, and the book of Joshua itself. Once you begin to read the story a little bit more carefully, what you realize is there's lots of material there that says, well, we didn't quite conquer everything. Matter of fact, we didn't even conquer most of it. As a matter of fact, for the two next 200 years, we're kind of running for our lives. So God's got to send these judges to help us out. Why? Because things are not going well. Uh, the book of Judges, it becomes clear that the conquest is anything but decisive. And so Judges is going to narrate the period after the conquest is complete. It's going to narrate a period of about 200 years. Uh, the Canaanites are still there, and the Israelites are just kind of you know, hanging on by their fingernails trying to last in there. We're going to have a series of 12 Judges. Uh, they need to repeatedly s uh, save the Israelites. By the way, number 12 strike you as being familiar? Lots of 12s. Uh, may have been more than 12, but 12 are listed. Some of them you know, because there's great stories about them, some of which you've never heard of, and there's not much about. Uh, 200 years later, is David still having to take the land? He has to take Jerusalem, you know, and he sneaks in uh, through the, the, the water deal there. Even within the book of Joshua, there are strong indications that the narrative is not strictly historical, but it may have some other uh, purposes. For example, the city of Ai, uh, the word I means ruin. We conquered the ruin. Now, aren't you proud of that? Matter of fact, in the book, it tells it took two attempts. The first time they tried to take the ruin, they couldn't take it. Um, bad day. Second time they took the ruin. So, uh, several times in Joshua, there are clear statements that the conquest is less than total. This is Joshua 13. Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years. So this is, you know, after he's done all of this stuff he's going to do. The Lord said to him, you're old and advanced in years. Okay, good to know. Thanks for bringing that up. And very much of the land remains to be possessed. You didn't take it all, Joshua. Joshua 15. But the people of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites. Remember where they lived? Jerusalem. The inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's why 200 years later, David's got to do that. Because they couldn't take it. So the Jebusites live with the people of Judah in Jerusalem to this day at the time this author is writing. Joshua 17. Yet the Massonites, the, uh, Manasseh is the tribe sort of in the central highlands that we would call Samaria, up north of Jerusalem, could not take possession of those towns, but the Canaanites continued to live in that land. So 
you begin to look closely and realize, well, the conquest is not really a conquest, the way we'd think of that. They move in, they take some land, and archaeologists can say, well, what it looks like from the archaeology is, is that uh, the cities and the lowlands where the crops are, and what are the Canaanites, do you remember? Farmers or sheep herders? Farmers. That's their, s they, they stay there. The Israelites shows up in the pottery and stuff. They take the highlands up in the lower area, up, up above that. Uh, even when the Israelites grew strong, I'm going to get closer and closer here, they did not utterly drive them out. Okay. Now, at one extreme, remember the minimalists? Okay. Um, people who argue that unless you can document something historically, it didn't happen. Uh, most respectable historians are not minimalist, but some are. But you, you do get some books which say, okay, settlement never happened. There's nothing historic about this. This is all just story narrative. Uh, or they would use the word myth, which really gets people worked up. On the other hand, the archaeology does, in fact, support the narrative in the Bible in broad terms. Maybe not every specific city, Jericho and I, eh, Hebron, maybe not so much. But what we do know is that we have a group of people moving into the land. Uh, they are the same group as the Israelites. They're, they're, they're Canaanites. Uh, we begin to see a series of new settlements. The population, again, goes up, particularly in the highlands. The, the, the civilization of the Canaanites down the valleys uh, becomes unstable and collapses. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? In broad strokes, would be essentially the narrative as we have it. The Canaanites remain in the cities, uh, the agriculture-rich lowlands. In addition, uh, th just to complicate the story, how many tri tribes are there? Try 24. Mentioned in the Bible. Okay. Uh, the number 12 is is important number. Uh, there are other tribes: Gibeonites, Hivites, Gittites, Carathites, Pelathites, and and more. And as the, as the story begins to unfold, what you realize is these are with the Israelites. They're working. Some of them were probably already in the land and did not come with the, the group that came out of Egypt. They've been there, for, but they consider themselves, all, so it all becomes mixed up. Uh, the biblical narrative makes it clear that there's more than 12 tribes. Uh, the number that you'll see kicked around sometimes is maybe as many as 24. We really don't know. Uh, so where did the number 12 come from? Well, the earliest historical thing we can link to is we know that Solomon divided his kingdom into 12 administrative districts, kind of 12 tribal areas. Uh, could it predate that by, by hundreds of years? Absolutely it could, but that's as far as we can go back to. Some people kind of point that out. Um, the biblical narrative indicates only some of the tribes. Again, if you read the story real quickly, you get the idea they all came in, but clearly not all came. Some are already there. Um, and again, the numbers in Exodus, remember, what was the number? How many came over? Yeah, 600,000 men plus women plus children plus others. Four million maybe which uh, unless that word which translated thousand might mean clan or, or family unit. Uh, so again, those numbers are a little problematic. Uh, but this basic scenario, 
You got people coming in from the outside. They're joining others who are already there. They're settling. They're settling in the highlands. Population spikes and down in the valleys. That civilization becomes destabilized and begins to collapse. And basically it will stay collapsed for the next 200 years. And then the next thing that emerges in the archaeological record is David's kingdom. Broad strokes, the story stands. Uh, don't get hung up on, on each, you know, great song may or may not have happened, okay, now in that particular space. Uh, again, some of the, some of the details. Uh, for example, why would you tell the story of I? The town is named Ruin, and you tell the story of how we took it and destroyed it. Now, if you're writing hundreds of years later or talking, telling this story to your children and grandchildren and stuff, what would you be saying to them? This would be what's called an ideology. It's explaining how that ruin got there. <coughs> that, you know, back in the day when we took the land, there's an example of what we did, uh, even if that's not that specific place. The evidence is we have a loose confederation of Canaanite tribes. Um, this is why the Manephilus Stella refers to them not as a state, but as a people. Uh, the evidence also indicates that in many respects they're indistinguishable from other Canaanites. Uh, and so they establish themselves. This leads into the book of Judges. Judges is going to overlap the settlement by a little bit. And it's going to take the story essentially down to the time of David, or you might say down to the time of Saul. And David's a part of that story, about 200 years. Um, judge, I used to think, you know what a judge is, right? Except in the Bible. A judge is not a judge in the Bible. A judge is a different kind of thing. In the Bible, it's a military term. Uh, all the, none of the judges practice law. They don't make legal decisions. Uh, they all execute God's justice. Are God's judgment, and that's where we get the word judge from. They execute the judgment. They're military deliverers. Uh, they announce and deliver the judgment on God's uh, enemies, Esther's enemies. And it's interesting, it's striking that all 12 of these, not one of them is a national leader. They're all leaders of particular tribes. They don't get the 12 tribes together for an action, they muster their tribe. So these are, 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 are different kind of figures. You can see from the map where are most of them. In the north, okay. The stories start in the south, and then they kind of move north. Uh, they're from 11 different tribal regions, so somebody's not represented. I'm not sure which one. Uh, well, I can tell you which one. Simeon, down south. Beersheba, down below that. Uh, and Simeon probably by this time is, is already starting to be absorbed by Judah. Um, Here's the cycle in Judges. And if you've ever studied the book of Judges, you see this cycle. It happens. It's, it's like a wheel. It's almost like a Buddhist kind of thing over and over and over. People sin. And in this book, sin is never ethical. It's never what you did to another person. Sin is always worshiping other gods. That's sort of the, the Deuteronomic kind of theme. God punishes them by, by sending the Canaanites and others to oppress them. They cry out for help. God sends a judge to deliver them. And that fixes it, right? No, because they don't learn. The cycle repeats over and over and over, and that's what the whole book is. Uh, they, and frustration now, because the cycle is endless, and it's kind of like being caught in this Buddhist wheel where you're just getting nowhere, you know. They cry out. They think they got the answer. What's the answer? We had a king. 
like everybody else had a king, we'd be in really good shape. Now, woven into this is another theme. It's repeated word for word, identical, four times. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, what's the subtext? If we had a king, that wouldn't happen. And so there's this sort of impetus, you know, what is the solution to our problem? The solution is if we had a king like everybody else. But in the meanwhile, we've got judges. Deborah and Barak, you know several of the judges are women. Yay! Great women characters in the Bible, Deborah and Barak. Uh, she uses her sexuality as a weapon, effectively. Uh, reminds you also of uh, Judith in the Bible and <laughs> some others. She pegs the enemy. Remember that story? Through the head with a you know, vampire type thing. Uh, her females does not appear to be an issue. She is a judge. She is a leader. She is a military deliverer in her own right. Barak plays kind of a, a subtext. Gideon, know the story Gideon? Great story. One of the longer stories, three chapters. Uh, he's a typical judge in the sense he's a zero. He's a nobody. He's a not, okay? Uh, he's an insignificant member of a small and insignificant clan. And the story plays it up. Why? When victory comes, who's the credit for the victory going to go to? Not this guy. Yeah. And so there's all these stories here. Remember, he, he, he asked for some recruits, and he gets a lot. And God starts whittling, the, whittling his troops down to nothing. And then the statement is made is, so when victory comes, the people will know, Gideon, it was not you. Remember the fleece story? Talking about testing God's patience. God, I'll, I will do what you tell me to do if, you know, in the next morning I put this fleece out and the ground is dry, but the fleece is wet from the dew. And he wakes up the next morning and the ground is dry and the fleece is wet. Okay, God, let's reverse it. Tomorrow morning I'll do what you want to do if the fleece is dry, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And he just kind of tests God. And uh, the drinking story, anybody that uh, cups the hand, out. We just want the lappers like dogs. You know, we want those vicious beast types, you know. Uh, fire battle at night. Uh, Gideon is uh, one of the voices who has this negative view of kingship and, and there. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. You may want a king. I am no king. The Lord will be your king. Samson Delilah. Great story. Again, big story. Three chapters. He's a typical strong man. Hercules, Paul Bunyan, you know, his strength knows no bounds. He can do anything, everything. He's a Nazarite. Do you remember what a Nazarite is? He's taken the Nazarene vow. He will drink no wine. He will not cut his hair because of his commitment and dedication to God. So what happens to his hair? It's gorgeous. You know, <laughs> you know that's the, the whole Delilah story gets there. Uh, all of his battles are personal. He never takes a single person into battle with him. He's a strong man. He just, you know, he's the hero, solo hero type. He's the Lone Ranger type. Um, his fatal flaw, one of the themes of Second Temple period, is foreign women. They'll bring you down every time. He has a Philistine wife. He has a Philistine prostitute he goes to. And Delilah is a Philistine. Who are the Philistines? The Philistines are over on the coast. They're part of the Sea Peoples. And they're a group that, uh, that Israel is fighting with during this period. And they're oppressed. As a matter of fact, the Philistines a real low blow they win a battle and they steal the ark of the covenant now that is just low okay culturally archaeologically it's interesting because here's what uh, the archaeologists say 
we really can't tell much difference between the Israelites and the other, interesting language, the other Canaanites. So what are the Israelites? They're Canaanites. The whole area, they're Semitic peoples, but they're Canaanites. What distinguishes them is their faith, not their culture. The Ark of the Covenant seems to be associated with the northern kingdom, with Ephraim, because it's mentioned in a series of towns up there. It, it may be significant. What is it that David brought into Jerusalem when he took Jerusalem? The Ark of the Covenant. Remember uh, one of the great stories of the Bible, uh, David dancing naked? It gives you a visual. You just don't want to go there, okay? Uh, there's a guy... It starts to fall, a guy touches it, and he dies. Okay? One of the interesting things about that story may be that the Ark of the Covenant appears to be more important to the northern tribes than the southern tribes. And what is it that David's trying to do when he takes Jerusalem and put his capital? Because Judah is below there, and Israel's north of there, and Jerusalem's in the middle, and he's trying to create a united kingdom. So if you bring the Ark of the Covenant, that, that's conjecture, but there could be something to that. Uh, book of Ruth is a book probably written much later, but it's set during this period. So I thought we'd look at it real quick. And it's, it's one of the most uh, unusual books in the Bible. Uh, she's from Moab. See where Moab is over there? Um, she's a Moabitess, which is interesting because in the Old Testament, Moabites are singled out as being the people you do not mix with even to the 10th generation. They're not allowed in the temple. So uh, you remember what the story of the Good Samaritan? Samaritans have kind of a, f yeah, Moabites have the same kind of deal. It's part of, the, part of the story. Now, it's a remarkable story at two levels because, the first of all, the two main characters are female. That is unusual, Naomi and Ruth. Uh, is the story of a non-Israelite? She's not a Jew. She's not an Israelite. She never was. She be kind of becomes one. We'll look at that in a second. Two-thirds of the text is dialogue, not narrative. Unusual. So at multiple levels, this stands out. It's a counter story. Uh, it goes directly against the legal injunction of the book of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 23.3. No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, into the temple, even to the tenth generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted into the assembly of the Lord. So if you've got a Moabite, that converts and becomes a, a Jew, <coughs> 10 generations in the future, can their, ch can their great, 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 great grandchildren come into the temple? No, okay? Now that's the culture. Now look what the book of Ruth does. This non-Israelite Ruth, she's a Moabite, she's the great-grandmother of David, according to the narrative. Within four generations, she becomes a guard, part of God's people, not because she's ethnically an Israelite, which is a major issue during the Second Temple period. How does she become? She professes faith. Your God shall be my God. Your people shall be my people. That's, that's a conversion. She chooses freely to become a part of Naomi's people. So it's like the book of Jonah. There's, there's, there's some polemic here. Uh, other key elements, remember the Leverat law? She, uh, when her husband dies, the, the next closest male has the right of redemption to marry her father, child, so the family's name goes on. Ruth and Naomi, uh, many wedding vows. Ruth in the fields of Boaz, that's the sex scene that keeps all the yeshiva boys awake, you know. Uh, United Kingdom is going to last 70 years. Um, two or three kings. Actually, there's only two kings. Saul is never king of the whole place. 
call, Saul is kind of a warlord king of the northern tribes, but he never has any relationship with the south. So really, the United Kingdom is primarily David and Solomon. You've got four key figures, Saul, David, Solomon, and Samuel. Samuel is the last judge. He's a transition figure. Samuel is the first prophet. So with Samuel, we have that, that transition. So First uh, Samuel tells the story of Samuel and Saul. David becomes, uh, before he becomes king, and ends with the death of Saul. Second Samuel, we'll get to next week. That's the story of David as king. Uh, and all the familiar stories we are with that. First and second Samuel, and there are really the story of how does this, uh, as the Merneptha Stella has, how does this people, this nomadic, amorphous kind of group, become a state, become an entity, become a nation? And this is really the story of how that happens. They go from a loose confederation of tribes in which a crisis arrives and an individual uh, judge may come and deal with it. And now they're going to become a monarchy. Um, we've got this wonderful figure of Samuel, who is a trans, uh, transitional figure. Interestingly enough, he breaks the mold. He's not a military figure. He's the only judge that isn't. He's called a judge. But specifically, he's mentioned to be a judge. He's a religious figure. Uh, so we see a transition here that's kind of going on. Uh, he's going to ask as judge. He's going to act as prophet. He's going to act as priest. By the way, what character do you remember in the Old Testament who fulfilled those three functions? Moses. So he's almost like a Moses kind of figure. Uh, priest, prophet, judge. That language is used. His role, Samuel's role, is to launch the monarchy, which Samuel knows is a bad idea because God has told him about it. It's a bad idea. God does not think that Mon this is in Deuteronomy. God does not think that monarchy is a good idea. Samuel does not think monarchy is a good idea. So why would you anoint someone a king? Who are you playing to? The people. Who they want to have a king like everybody else. That's, that's the storyline there. He bows to the pressure. Uh, later he'll anoint David. Uh, like the other judges, uh, his area is he's a specific area up there. He's in the area of uh, Lower Ephraim and the area of Benjamin, and just, just a little bit north of Jerusalem. Uh, he went on a circuit year by year from Bethel to Gilgal to Mitzpah. Mitzpah is interesting. Mitzpah is eight miles north of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem's destroyed and the Babylonians come in, the Babylonians will set up their capital at Mitzpah. And for all the people who oppose the destruction of Jerusalem, they go to work for the Babylonians up there. And this becomes a story we'll follow later. Uh, he judged Israel and all those places. He would come back to Ramah, where his home was. He administered justice there for Israel. So that, that's kind of his uh, pedigree. Uh, some key scenes. Remember Hannah's prayer, the birth of Samuel? Hannah is barren. Prays to God for a child. Uh, it is Hannah's song that Mary quotes. Or is it Elizabeth? Elizabeth. In the New Testament, Elizabeth kind of quotes Hannah's song for the birth. Remember, uh, Hannah does not have a child. She prays to God for a child. John the Baptist is born. You've got Samuel in the temple of, Sh of Shiloh when he's a, uh, a little boy. Um, you've got the, then the call of Samuel. Remember that famous story where he's asleep and he hears a voice crying, Samuel, Samuel. And he runs up and goes to the priest Eli and says, I'm here. And Eli says, 
Go to bed. I didn't call you. Over and over and over. And finally, Eli figures out, God is calling you. Next time it happens, pay attention. And this is where he's called to be a great story. Uh, capture the ark. People ask for a king. Saul is made king. Samuel now bows out. Uh, Saul is rejected by God for multiple reasons. He, uh, the interesting thing about Saul is Saul is the kind of guy who would get elected in an election. Okay, He's got the pedigree. He's got the looks. He's a, he's a, he's a man's man. He's real strong. He's got you know, all that kind of going for it. But character-wise, he's flawed. And so we have a lot of stories of that. He's not a good king. And so uh, God's favor is going to pass to this runt. Remember uh, when, when they present all of the, the brothers, and brothers of David? And they go through all of them, and none of them are the one that God has called. And so the prophet eventually has to say, well, you got any other kids? He says, well, I got the runt. He's out with the sheep, you know. Okay, bring him in, and that's the one that God wanted. David is the opposite of Saul. He's the least of the sons of Jesse. Uh, we have 16 through 31, this story. Um, David serves Saul. He's an armor bearer. He's a musician. We have the David and Goliath story, which we'll look at in just a second. Uh, Saul is jealous. It's one of his character flaws. David marries Saul's daughter. Some people read into this a very astute political move, okay, because <laughs> you're now married into the royal family, uh, which gives you, you know, some bona fides there. Uh, Saul plans to kill David and Jonathan intercedes actually Saul tries to kill David several times David has to flee uh, he's an outlaw David spares Saul twice we'll go in and demonstrate to Saul while you're asleep I cut off the hem of your deal here it is I could have killed you but I didn't Paul is a charismatic he removes with prophets and witches uh, and in the Old Testament that's punishable by death Saul then commits suicide at the end when he loses the battle David is the first king to rule everything, and he will build a, a great kingdom. It's interesting. At the time David becomes king, archaeologically we know this. Egypt has collapsed. Mesopotamia has collapsed. So the two ruling powers are weak. What's in the middle? David's kingdom. And so David is able to expand. He writes the Psalms. But he also is a flawed character. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. Yet he has redeeming qualities. He repents. He will become, from a later perspective, the ideal king. Although the book of uh, Kings makes it clear that he was not quite ideal. Uh, but we have this unconditional promise made to his lineage. Uh, now, we're just going to kind of end this. The, the history looks like that somebody took multiple traditions and combined them. And when you do that, what do you get? Duplications. And sometimes some stuff that doesn't quite fit. One of them is the issue, who killed Goliath? What's the stock answer? Maybe. <laughs> Depends on which story you go to. Samuel 17, 5. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. That's how you do it. You know, that's our story. Well, 2 Samuel 21. Elhana, the Benjaminite, killed Goliath the Gittite. Oops. You know, different stories, different traditions. There's three versions of how Saul was chosen to be king. It depends if you want to read uh, chapter 9, <laughs> chapter 10, or chapter 11. You know, uh, Saul is, has to be introduced to David two times. And uh, 16, we get this. So Saul sent messages to Jesse, say, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. David came to Saul, entered his service. 
Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. That's the story we know. Well, 1 Samuel 17. By the way, in case you're tracking this, this is later. Saul saw David go out against the Philistine and said to Abner, the commander of the army, who is that? What? I thought we knew who he was. Abner said, as your soul lives, O king? I don't know. Never saw the boy before. The king said, inquire whose son this stripling is. All of which indicates that, that what we have now is probably multiple versions of stories that have been brought together and worked together. And, you know, not all the edges got knocked off. So we have a kind of a richness there, multiple traditions. So next week, where we want to start is we want to start with continue the story of David, but David as king and then go into his son Solomon and then the kingdom splits. The northern kingdom falls, and then the southern kingdom falls. Again, just a few little things to deal with. Okay. Uh, would you stand as we sing together? Hymn 451. Reminder that um, after the service and a short interlude, we'll have a brief communion service. <laughs>